my own podcast. You no, know, guys, well, this is what I had to do. Facebook wouldn't let us in alive, and YouTube wouldn't either. So I'm recording this, and I'm going to put it out on YouTube later and Facebook later because it just wouldn't let us get in. I don't, I don't know what the glitch is, but it, it wouldn't let us get in. Were you recording all this while we were talking? Yeah. Well, it, 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 somehow it gets recorded, but I, I'm recording this on uh, my computer, and I'll put it on YouTube later. So I don't know if anyone, uh, all your friends, the thousand friends you had at, uh, waiting to see you tonight, who said the last time that you were underwhelming, that uh, they were yes. waiting to see you. <laughs> but can you can you cut out the first five minutes of me and Mark gabbing? Or? May, maybe. We probably should do that, you know? <laughs> Well, do you want to start? Yeah, start. I thought we did start. All right, so here we go. Uh, welcome, everybody, our fans. Uh, welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm here with my co-host, my partner in all things law enforcement, the very handsome Bill Cannon. You know, so that uh, Pam, our uh, producer, told me I should take my glasses off when we do these Zooms because it all shines in my face. And she goes, it washes out your head with... With my white hair, you know, so yeah, yeah. Well, your head is still washed out, but I know it's still washed out. I, I, I need darker hair, I think, you know. And listen, um, you look fine, uh, you know, you're a handsome guy. Without <laughs> further ado, though, we're gonna bring on our guest, he's returning. Uh, most people never come back, but you are, <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> you're not as smart as you look, man. So, here we are. Uh, he's a retired NYPD chief. He's the former police, police commissioner of Yonkers PD. He's the president of uh, a risk management company. Put your hands together for Edmund Harnett, folks. Yay. Thank you, Mark. Well, Thank also, you, Bill. He also ran a, like, one of the largest security companies and for seven years and brought it from X amount of earnings to, well, you know, to $120 million a year. And, and he feels he had an integral part in making that unnamed security company grow to one of the largest ones in the country right now. Oh, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Mark. Listen, like you said, I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment. I put my hand on the stove again uh, <laughs> to be with you two characters today. But uh, if, if I could start off, you don't mind, guys, I'll just hijack the show entirely. Uh, on, a, on a serious note or two, if you don't mind, uh, first, first of all, well, kidding aside, I want to thank you guys because during COVID, you guys were, were one of those connections to, to back to the normal life. I mean, you, you were doing stuff every day. Uh, you, kept, you kept doing the, the podcast, Zooming it or whatever. Uh, Bill, you were doing a song a day for a while, and you yeah, brought back a lot of good memories. And uh, you even did some Allman Brothers, one of my favorites. So all kidding aside, gentlemen, thank you very much for keeping that link to, to the normal life that we used to know. Uh, secondly, if you don't mind, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Chief Teresa Shortell is retiring next week after 39 years. Uh, not much into the fanfare, not much into any kind of drama, but one of the best people I've ever met, not just in policing, in my life. Uh, Terry and I worked three times in our career together. She's a real cop's cop. She's a narco ranger. She was a precinct commander three times. She ran the special victims unit. She ran the gang unit. Uh, the last several years, she's been in charge of the training bureau. Uh, she'll be sorely missed, and I'm so proud of her. I just want to say congrats, Terry, and God bless. You know, Ed, whenever I hear someone uh, did 39 years, I think of, like, what a long time that is, you know? We had 
Sergeant. Well, it's funny, Bill, that you mentioned that because whenever I hear somebody did 39 years, I always think, couldn't do the 40, huh? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. We had Pete Panuccio on last week. And he did 39 years in X amount of months. And I, that's like an incredible amount of time. You know? it's a, on, that, on that point, there's a, there's a great man, he's a deputy commissioner of labor policy named John Byrne. And John Byrne, John Byrne has been on the job, actually he was a deputy chief, he got to age 63, and he's a nationally regarded expert in labor policy, they asked him to stay. So he's, he's in good shape, God bless him, he's in his 70s and, his attitude is when I see him, I say, "How you doing, Commissioner?" And he says, "60 and out, Ed," because he could he could conceivably do 60 years between his uniform time and his civilian time. Just a great man and a great guy, and and he's still going strong. That's, That's amazing, dude. Some so, people, I guess, they just love the job is what makes them uh, keeps them alive, inspires them, keeps them happy. You know, I'm not. Literally, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Let, on the last serious note, if I can, guys. Uh, this was, I think today or yesterday was, would have been the birthday of John DeLara, uh, who got killed on 9-11. Uh, would have been 66. And I worked with John. He was a cop. I was a sergeant in the 4th, 6th precinct in the Bronx. And, and uh, special thoughts today for John. A great man. He was an ESU cop, right? Yeah, yeah, he was. he was. He was in incredible shape. The guy was like a junior Mr. Universe in his younger days. Even as a cop, he was always climbing up on stuff. I mean, you knew he was destined to be an E-man because he was always climbing up on top. And I'm wearing a an E-Man shirt today in John's honor, but also my son is a proud E-Man, so I want to fly the flag for him as well. Your son's on NYPD? Yes, sir. How many years does he have on? Um, my son Matt has 15 years on. Wow. So I'm very proud of him. That's great. That's great. You can't well, see the shirt on things. Now but... that he said all the serious shit, Mark, now we're going to start busting his balls. So well, you know, Ed, I, I forgot to mention in my intro that you do a great impersonation of Jay Leno. <laughs> but, I, but I didn't know that you were going to start off your whole opening with it. <laughs> Thanks. What's, what's your name again? I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to talk the whole opening like that. <laughs> I did it my walk. Come on, man. That was a good Listen, joke. Somebody's got to carry you, too. Somebody's got to carry you, too. <laughs> that was a good joke. Come on, it's man. It's like watching paint dry, the both of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, Ed, what we wanted to talk about was... Uh, Obviously, what the product that you endorsed, Bowler Wrap, because Mark was actually a uh, a Bowler Wrap dummy last week, <laughs> and that shot with Bowler Wrap, and we he can attest to the fact that that it does work. You want to tell our audience about that, Mark? Well, uh, it definitely gets your attention, and once it's around you, you don't want to move at all because it's got like hooks in it. You know, and uh, those will hey, listen. I I wore a sweatshirt on top of my regular shirt, and I had these things that went around my arms underneath the sweatshirt, and then I put sweatpants over my jeans because I was smart enough to wear jeans, and I still felt it. But it's you know I'm fine. And, and did, you see, did you see him after you guys shot him? He's like, didn't hurt. <laughs> but you know what? Other, know. Than, other than a couple of like what look like mosquito bites around my calves and and maybe around my elbows uh like you know there was no residual effect so it's not really doing any harm but i couldn't move out of it uh i couldn't even try to run so i you know using it the way it was explained to us that day 
in certain circumstances, it's highly effective. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's a thank you. And it, thank you guys for, for that, that uh, demo and that, you know, all the time you spent that day. Uh, again, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm in, a, I'm in a good spot in my life where if people ask me to help out with consulting with, on a product or product development or marketing or whatever you want to call it, business development, I can pick and choose because, you know, I, I, can, I can have high criteria, I like to think I always did, about, you know, is it something I want to attach my name to? Uh, is it something like if I was still sitting in a chief's chair, would I want to explore this product for the men and women I have out in the street, for the community? Would it be cost effective? Would it, would it, would it help out? Would it maybe save lives or keep people from getting injured? And, and this product, Wrap, checks all the boxes. I mean, anybody that wants to see it can go to the website. It's, it's uh, raptechnologies.com. Uh, it's a publicly traded company, so it's a stock symbol is WRTC. Uh, it, it's a great outfit, and, and what I like about it most is it doesn't really rely on pain to make people comply. And those other products that are out there, whether it's electronic control devices or beanbag guns, whatever they are, they all serve a purpose. They're, they're good products. But each one of them, whether it's batons or anything else, it requires some form of pain. You've got to inflict pain on someone to get them to do what you want them to do. Bowler wrap is primarily designed for people in emotional or mental health crisis. So we've all been there. You get the guy in a, in a courtyard or in an apartment, in a schoolyard, street, whatever, and he is out of control. Maybe he hasn't taken his medicine, maybe he's schizophrenic, bipolar, whatever. We've all been there, and usually the outcome is somebody's getting hurt. Usually the guy, and usually the several cops that, that try to restrain him. You get a guy on angel dust, whatever. This product, not, it's not perfect, doesn't work in every situation, but this product can, and most of the time does, safely restrain that person where their arms or legs are wrapped up. Now they're, they're wondering what's going on. And by that time, as our policy would say, the team rushes in, puts them on the ground, handcuffs them, and it's over. So we're not all going to the hospital to get treated. So again, without that pain compliance uh, factor, I think, I think Bullrap is an excellent product, and I'm happy to attach my name to it. I, you know, my favorite part of it, watching Mark get bowler wrapped was you guys going bowler, bowler, bowler. <laughs> and we have to keep in mind that, you know, Mark, he's a good guy, don't get me wrong, but he's soft. He spent most of his time below 59th Street, so it shows. Hey, listen, I'll be the, I'm going to tell you, I'll be the first one to tell you, I have a very low uh, threshold for pain. If somebody... If somebody took me hostage, I would give up government secrets immediately. <laughs> okay, listen, fellas, there's no need for any of this. Whatever you need, I got it for you. Just let me know. <laughs> but one thing I tell people all the time, when, when you get when you get your when that thing is wrapped around your shins, uh, you know, I don't care if you're a, a karate guy, it's gonna be hard to fight and it's gonna be hard to run. So right there, that's most of the most of the battle that, that you're gonna avoid. I mean, there's no foot chase. Definitely, it definitely no gets your attention because it does. And the noise sound, it makes is, is a the deterrent. sound that when it comes out, it almost sounds like a gunshot. Yep. And the way it wraps around you so quick, even though it doesn't hurt, it's got your attention. You're like, what? What just happened? And you can't, you can't get out of it. Um, so yeah, it's high. It's a, I, I I agree. Like you, the the circumstances that you just explained. I think it's uh, it's highly effective, and I, and I think it's pretty cool. By the way, that you know, 
you know, with you, with all your years of service on the job and stuff, people go to experts to get their opinion. You know, like you put your name, like you said, you put your name on your stuff. Like your name is like a brand almost like you like the Kardashian of the law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> you see how I did that? I went the long way. I went the long way. Except he doesn't have 4 million followers though. Mark, right? well, I tell you, I, I have to change my whole business model now. Thank you. My, my business cards, everything. It's going to now say Ed Hartnett, public safety consultant, the Kardashian of law enforcement. <laughs> I was <all laughs> Thank you. The joke started off with Beyonce, then I changed it to Kardashian. So yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It, it worked. It took a while. It, you, you got there eventually, though. I went around. You did, yeah. We saw what you did. I had, did. I had to lure you in. <laughs> yeah. So, Ed, I mean, let, let, let me ask you something. Now, it seems like when cops use deadly physical force right now, even if they're being shot at and they win the gunfight, there's riots. So it seems like even when they're 100% correct, and using deadly physical force, there's, there's problems with it. So I think, I mean, not, look, there's times where you, there's no way you can use a non-lethal device because you're just putting your, your own life in more danger by doing that. But it seems like they're going to have to come up with more non-lethal devices because the public is so averse to the police using deadly physical force. Yeah, and, and Bola Rap, listen, they have some very, very skilled master trainers that work across the country, and I've been on sessions with most of these guys. Uh, they, they never tell people if it's a deadly force situation, you know, Bola Rap, you know, is not the answer. Guys pulling a gun, you know, all bets are off. Right. One thing good about Bola Rap, though, when, when somebody has an edged weapon, a knife, again, that could result in a, in a legal shooting. However, the... Bowler wrap, you have to be 10, 12 to 20, 25 feet away. So you got some time, you got some distance. Uh, and many of the situations that you'll see are, you know, these suicide by cop things where a person has a knife, maybe to their own throat, and they're saying, kill me, kill me, kill me. In, in many situations, the cop may have a chance to deploy a bowler wrap, but if that guy starts to charge, right. then he or she's going to get shot, and that's, and that's justifiable. But to, to your other point, Bill, about... The, the reaction now to police shootings, it's ironic because everybody that cries for due process doesn't seem to want due process for the police. Right. So it's kind of ironic when you think about it that like this thing in, in Wisconsin, I don't know if that's a good shooting or not, but those folks that are out there rioting and burning places down, they don't know if it was a good shooting yet either. But it seems like everybody has jumped to that conclusion. I kid around, I say people are getting a lot of exercise jumping to conclusions. Yes. Uh, but, you know, due process, everybody screams for due process, and rightfully so, but there seems to be a police exception, which I'm not comfortable with. Well, look, uh, Bill mentioned the, uh, the riots right after a shooting, like you just said, Ed, about not knowing the whole story yet. It doesn't even matter whether the cops shoot him. The guy, this guy shot himself in the head the other day. He was being chased by the police. I think he got out of his car, he shot himself in the head. He shot himself in the head, and they're rioting in Minneapolis over it. So it doesn't matter whether the cops shoot him. It's just a moment to riot. And when we yeah. talk about riot, we're talking about burning stuff down. So it seems like they're just waiting, just waiting for the next incident that's even remotely close so that they can go in and burn stuff down. People even would the folks, Even the, the parents of the, the gentleman that got shot in Wisconsin, who, who sadly might be paralyzed, even his parents have come out 
and say, said, we don't want this. My son wouldn't want this. Uh, let's get the facts. Listen, if, if, if cops anywhere, we all know if cops, you know, mess up, especially if they do it willfully, then, you know, it's on them. You know, we don't, we don't, we've had instances where people have made our very noble profession look bad, but those instances are quite rare when you think about it, yeah. but, but they don't seem to get the benefit of the doubt at all. So how has this false narrative become the narrative of the land? It, it's amazing to me, even the whole, you know, how, how quickly the defund the police movement got, got legs. Uh, amazing. It's, like, it's, it's, it's convenient, hardwood sign and right defund the police, but are those folks really thinking about what that means? In some cases, they're talking about we can get rid of our police department in five years. What are you going to replace them with? Right. Uh, it's amazing to me. There's, there's, uh, there's these people called violence interrupters. They're social workers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's funny? My, uh, my son sent me this, and I think it's pretty cool. There's... Uh, a UFC fighter, his name is Colby Covington. He's very, uh, he's very conservative. He said, oh, wow, because he's talking about the uh, basketball players sitting out and everybody else boycotting games. He says, oh, wow, you postponed your games. Want to prove you're really about change? Quit your multi-million dollar jobs and soft privileged lives playing, ki playing a kid's game. Take a massive pay cut and perform the toughest job in America. Become a cop. Yes, and he's right, you know, we're, we're uh, these guys, uh, they're 20-something-year-olds, and some of them are 30-something-year-olds, and, uh, you know, they're, they're dictating right now the, what's going on over here, whether a shooting's good or whether it's bad, and their job is not tough at all. They're bouncing a ball, and the whole country's captivated by what they're doing. Who gives a shit? Yeah, it's, it's amazing that, that, again, some of these folks are totally – uninformed or misinformed, many of them uh, don't live anywhere close to these neighborhoods that are impacted by crime and violence. Again, uh, defund the police. I, I hearken back to many community meetings and, and church basements and school cafeterias that I went to uh, with, with mostly communities of color. And, uh, and those folks, trust me, they didn't, want, they didn't want social workers. They would actually tell me that they need my cops to be more aggressive. And when they said more aggressive, I've had sweet church ladies tell me things like, you need to kick their ass. You need to kick their ass some more. I'm tired of this. So those folks, they talk about defunding the police or these professional athletes that are so out of touch with reality. They should go talk to some of those church ladies because I can't tell you how many they know what's going on. And they do not want less policing. They want more policing. Right. And again, if you talk about police reforms, police reforms cost money. Listen. There are some, some departments that need some major reforms, and some need some tweaking, and some are, are pretty good at what they do. But, but I say saying that every police department needs major reform is like saying that everybody needs to lose weight. You know, it's not true. You know, some do. Mark, I'm not referring to you at all, but, you know, uh, some, see, some need a little tweak. You see, see what I do with that? I came right back around. He's got bowler wrap PTSD. <laughs> but, but, but my point is, you know, it's a broad brush that police departments get painted with, and it's a broad brush that police officers individually get painted with, painted with and it's unfair. Well, you know, so, uh, I don't know if you, you know about this guy from uh, 
he's a talking head on CNN. His name is James Gagliano, and he's a retired FBI agent. And he he writes some articles, and he always comes out with the the voice to me, the voice of reason. And he's talking how government in these cities where the riots are happening have abdicated their authority and are letting the mob just do whatever they want to do. And look, any police department, any well-trained police department could stop these rioters quite easily if they were allowed to. But government is not allowing them to. That includes New York City. They, they're letting the rioters do whatever they want. And in the, in the case of New York, the governor's siding with, he calls them the protesters. No, but they're rioters too. He sides with them. So how can the police do their job when government has abdicated their, their authority and their roles? And, and even worse in Portland and in Seattle. Seattle the other night, I mean, a bunch of people got together. They went to the local precinct. They took some kind of ready, quick dry cement and they, they tried to seal the door closed and they tried to set the building on fire. Uh, that to me, that's a hate crime on top of everything else. But, right. uh, but the, the government seems to just turn a blind eye. The local government there seems to turn a blind eye to that stuff. And they, I guess they figure, you know, the cops are expendable, which to, obviously is an outrage. I well, mean, they are, they are in this war that, that's going on right now. It's not really about the cops. It's about flipping the government. It's about taking the, the, the world in a, new, in, a, uh, in a new direction, open borders and all this other stuff. But the cops are just pawns in this whole thing. It's, um, it's a way to get at the president by attacking the state uh, buildings, the federal buildings. Um, so they need a lot of protection because that's the first place they go. And if those are too protected, then they'll go to the precincts or the, the PBA offices. Um, and the, the cops are just the middle. It's just the people fighting against the current government and trying to over, basically overturn it. Yeah. Look at, look at Bill Bratton wrote a book after his you know, success, very successful first time as NYPD police commissioner. And he called his book Turnaround. Because you, you remember what the city was like in the 70s, into the 80s, into the early 90s. So that turnaround took a while. As he said back then, it was like turning an aircraft carrier around. It takes a while. Uh, but you get it done. He got it done. It's, somebody's going to eventually write a book about New York City calling it Turn Back Around. Because yeah. <laughs> it's going to be... It's Do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. There you go. <laughs> and it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a steady ascent when you're going in the right direction. But when you have a current administration like, like in City Hall in New York City, it's a quick slide down. It, it, it comes very fast. And then when it gets down to rock bottom, whenever that is, it takes a long time to turn it back around again. Yes. I remember when uh, Giuliani became mayor and he wanted to turn Times Square or put Disney in Times Square. And it was the funniest thing to me. But the guy turned out to be a visionary. I mean, people don't remember New York City. There, there used to be... Um, you know, you could go down 27th Street and 11th Avenue, 26th Street, and there'll be prostitutes walking around. So my question to you, Ed, is how long before that happens again? <laughs> I, I think we're getting there. I think it's, uh, I mean, I tell you the truth, I don't think any self-respecting prostitute is going to go there anymore because there's no people around for them to have as customers. Well, that's another, yeah, that's uh, ironic that, that you mentioned that, but um, th that was the way the world worked. I mean, you could walk down, you could go down at any time of day, and there'll be girls walking down the street, scantily clad, you know, in, in you know, bedroom attire and trying to come into your car and, you know, soliciting you. And um, this went on. You could go over. I know all the places for some reason. 
But um, yeah, you could go over the bridge on 59th Street and right there in, in um, I guess it's Queensboro or before you get to Astoria, that Queensbridge area over there. It was all over the place. It was a different world back then. And it seems like we were destined to go back there for some reason. And you know, when they started, when they started CompStat and stuff, you, you remember the city was, it was a, it was a target rich environment for, for crime reduction. So we used to say, or the, the powers that be used to say back then, back then if you did, if you had a list of 10 things to do, if you did two or three of them, you were making serious progress. You'd make a significant progress. But then the NYPD got so good at it that those 10 things, whatever they were, you, you had to do pretty much nine or 10 of them just to make some kind of improvement because they were that good at getting crime down and improving quality of life. Now, like I said, it's, it's, it's completely flipped where you could have a list of 10 things to do, but city halls are not gonna let you do them. Right. But I think that they, what they may have done too, uh, in the final years of uh, Ray Kelly and uh, Michael Bloomberg, is I think they pushed it too far. And with, hey, the, with the stop, question, and frisk, they went overboard with that. And that uh, made the neighborhoods of color really get mad at the police department because people that shouldn't have been stopped were getting stopped for really no reason. So they overuse stop, question, and frisk. And, uh, you know, for me to say that, it has to be true because, I, you know, I was an anti-crime for six and a half years, and I know what a great tool stop, question, and frisk is. And you notice how I'm saying stop, question, and frisk, and not like the press says, stop and frisk. That's not what it is. It's called stop, mm -hmm. question, and frisk. I, when the press says that, I want to slap them. You know, and they all say it because it's dishonest. And they all, they're all dishonest, so they call it stop and frisk, you know. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's, it's, it's always been a kind of a, 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 a thorn in my side. Uh, you're absolutely right. What happened with Stop Question, question of Frisk is I've been to more CompStat meetings probably than most human beings and uh, I probably should get a life, but uh, I never heard any police executive, high-ranking executive say, get out there and get me Stop, stop and Frisk numbers. I want Stop and Frisk numbers. The problem was, and it's the police department's own fault, is by the time that message filtered down to the sergeant turning out the troops on a 4 to 12, what happened was he would say, hey, Cannon, uh, tonight I want a red light from you, I want two double parkers, and I want three stop and frisks. So it became a gauge of productivity as opposed to what we, what we meant it to be was stopping the right people in the right places at the right times for the right reason. Right. So do all four of those things, now you have a good tactic it's, and people say it's a program it's not a program it's a tactic so but again we shot ourselves in the foot another way we shot ourselves in the foot was we have all these negative stop and frisks right because when you had a positive stop and frisk and we've all been there you didn't do a stop and frisk form you did an arrest report right so we lost hundreds of positive stop and frisks we never bothered doing that damn form so when somebody came in and said 93 percent of your stops are negative it's not, it's not accurate, but it's our fault because it's not negative. Right. It's not accurate. That's true, yeah. That, you bring up a lot of great points with that. So we, we uh, and then sadly at the time, uh, the, the mayor and the police commissioner, again, Ray Kelly, 12 years, I don't know how the guy did it. You know, he's one of the gold standards in policing in America. But they thought that 
it wasn't something they needed to address when the city council kept banging their doors down to come talk about this. Right. And for whatever reason, they decided collectively that we're going to ignore the city council. We're going to ignore this because we know we're not doing anything wrong. Well, the program had, it needed some tweaks. It needed some attention. And I think had they, if they had the opportunity now, I think they would have re rethink that decision and come out in front and say, listen, you make some good points here. We're going to, we're going to fix this because NYPD is good at fixing stuff. And sadly it didn't get fixed. And then it was, it came down like a ton of bricks on us. Well, you know, because the point is, what are we going to bring it down to? Zero homicides a year? It's a city of eight million. There's no, there's no, you can, you can pound away, but at some point you're pounding on sand because people are going to kill each other in a city of eight million. Do you know what I'm saying? You got it down to 300. Okay. Easy, easy. We don't, easy. Well, it's, it's the intrusiveness that the police must use as a tactic in order to drop crime down that far. And at some point, I think it even, I read that book, Turnaround by Bill Bratton. At some point, he said that you got to start uh, investing more into the community when you reach a certain level and start doing more community policing. You know, you know, you have your warriors out there, your anti-crime. And I always thought that the most important component of the whole crime reduction was narcotics doing buy and bust 24 seven and locking up the people on the street that they were trying, they were doing street level crimes to get a couple more vials of crack. And I think that's what, you know, that's where narcotics came in. It was so important to that whole program. Oh, we do, listen, I, I'm very proud. Just, just take Manhattan South narcotics alone. I mean, I was down there as a Lieutenant. Hey, frankly, I made Lieutenant. I was, I, a few years later, I tried to get the narcotics. And uh, I got out hooked. I mean, I wanted to go to the Bronx. I wanted to go to Manhattan North. I wanted up Manhattan South. And it turned out, what a great place. I mean, the places we did buy and bust every day in the Lower East Side, the 7th Precinct, the 9th Precinct, you could buy more street heroin there than anywhere in the city. And now, well, now with COVID, but pre-COVID, now that neighborhood, there's like sidewalk cafes there. There's all kinds of, there's, there's theaters. There's all kinds of entertainment there. It was never there before. So to your point, Narcotics all across the city reclaim neighborhoods and let people have, have nice neighborhoods, nice lives again. And I, I, I think that's going to slide back pretty quick. Well, you know, go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry. Well, because, you know, I, I was in a Warren squad. I hit a lot of apartments. And a lot of people have this, uh, this image about the police and that nowadays and this, that, and the other. Let me tell you something. There are families that are saddled with people that are annoying, just alcoholic drug addicts and you go to these apartments and you show the warrant and nine out of ten times you feel like they're going to lie to you but there's always that one time where they were always like he's upstairs please please take him take him <laughs> it, because even if it's one day that they can live in peace without this person or a week and that's what we were kind of sort of in in what we were doing keeping people going through the system Taking them off the street, if it's a week, it's a month, it's six months. It's six months that people that are around this person's energy can be at calm. Whether it's their neighborhood, not their immediate family, but everybody who lives around them. Because you know when that guy comes out of prison or he comes out of Rikers and he's back on the corner grilling people again, he's like, oh, this motherfucker's back again. You know what I'm saying? But now that guy's there and he's not going anywhere. 
Yeah, and, and now it seems like he's going to wind up staying. And, and Bill, to your point about the community, you know, I, I'm doing a, a police consulting project. Uh, my fifth one, actually, I'm doing with a Bill Bratton-led team. Uh, I'm not going to get into the project I'm doing now because it's underway. But nothing against these other agencies where I've done these projects, but nobody engages with the community as well as the NYPD. Nobody devotes the resources that the NYPD does to the community. And, and again, they don't get enough credit because they're doing a lot of targeted policing now, precision policing. They've changed the tactics a lot. It's not saturation bombing anymore. It's more scalpel-like precision. But the community piece has never gone away. The community piece right. has always been intense. Uh, it was covered at CompStat. You had to talk about community contacts. Uh, sometimes a, a pastor or a community leader or community activist would have the chief's direct phone number. And you'd be, talked to, you'd be asked questions at CompStat about community contacts. And so again, the NYPD probably doesn't bang its drum enough on how much it engages and how much of the department's resources are devoted strictly to dealing with the community. Not putting people in handcuffs, not writing tickets, but actual community engagement. And again, it's sad that that's not recognized, certainly not recognized lately. But you know, Ed, every, the tools that um, not just the NYPD uses, but modern day policing uses, for example, gang databases and tracking gangs, because it's been, the research shows that gangs account for a seriously high level of the violence in a precinct. So what you were talking about, targeted type policing, using artificial intelligence, uh, you know, using, um, well, they took away the UF-250 database, you know, using those, um, those plate readers. I don't know, most people don't know about them, but that is an unbelievable investigative tool. Uh, and some of these other, you know, they, they wanna take away facial recognition now before most departments have even been using it. These are tools that will help law enforcement so, so much, and yet they want to take these tools away from them. Yeah, like it's, it's a great point about the 250 database, which, you know, for your, for your listeners, both of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's pretty funny. Sorry, sorry. I know it's Maybe I'm, just I'm, I'm, on this only two. I'm <laughs> underwhelming, I know. Uh, but that database, of, that's basically where all the stop, question, and frisk forms used to get logged in. And again, and you guys know better than me, that tool fought a lot of bad guys because when, when there's a shooting and somebody said, when they talked to a witness or a suspect and he said, I wasn't there that night, you looked at that 250 database and yes, you were there that night at one o'clock in the morning. And you got stopped five minutes earlier. Now you build a case in that guy. Or if something simple as a, a guy on parole or probation, you, his parole officer finds out, you were on the corner of walk and don't walk at 1130 at night. You're supposed to be home by nine. Now we're violating you. So right. all that stuff, that great info that, that real good copies have tapped into is gone now. And it's gone, again, to my, my original point, because we didn't pay enough attention to the stop and question and frisk program. And, and this is one of the bad results of it. Right. So, I mean, even when we used to have a homicide and there would be a huge crowd on the street, I would always surreptitiously try to take a picture of the crowd. Because sometimes either the perp was in the crowd or people that had information that we needed were in the crowd. And when you showed the picture, say, say to the precinct detectives, they were like, yeah, I know this guy. I know that guy. And then you brought him in. And I was, I was in Staten Island. They say, really? It's a picture of you from 10 minutes ago, you know? 
So it was it was helpful as an investigative tool. Yeah, it's it's a different world now. It's just investigations alone. It's it's a different world. It's 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 difficult. I mean, you still have the stop snitching mentality. Even though a lot of folks, oh, we have we're, we're plugged into the community. I get it, but you know that old mentality of snitches get stitches is still out there, and people are afraid to come forward and talk to the police. They'll do it maybe quietly. They'll do it on the side, and thank God some of them still do. But that mentality is is maddening. And another one that's even more maddening, I'm sure you guys identify with, is when you got the guy and he's shot in the leg, and he and he knows damn well who shot him, and everybody knows who shot him. But he's saying, I don't know what happened. I, you know, like we say, he got hit by the bullet fairy. Uh, but, but he doesn't want to tell you who shot him because he wants to go back and shoot him when he gets out of the hospital. Right, right. He has to so, take care of it himself. When I would, I would speak at community meetings again, and I would say so-and-so got shot, and now we're targeting both groups. And people would say, why are you targeting, why are you targeting the victim? Because you know, today's victim is tomorrow's suspect, and it, it's a crazy mentality when you know who shot you, but you don't want to tell anybody because you're going to take care of it yourself. Mark, Mark used to say on the 61, there should be a box that says, I'm going to take care of it myself. And then we could just close the case. It, it would be quite the <laughs> innovation. It's like N slash A, I'm taking yeah, care of this myself. That's right. The, the complainant says he's going to take care of it himself. Doesn't mean it's going to the police. Case closed. That's how long comedy's been shut down right now. That I, while you were saying the story, I was trying to put that joke together in my head, and Bill actually remembered it better than me. <laughs> I've done that joke for years. I've done that joke for, for seven years. Oh, and I, I couldn't. It's so it's so sad, man. It's so sad to watch uh, New York City decline because, you know, it's just uh, the people that should stand up and fight. The people that got the money, they're bailing out in droves. You know, if they just stood up and fought and said, you know what, I'm not going to donate to your campaign anymore unless you do this or to the Democratic Party, unless you clean this shit up. They'd rather sell their apartment, yeah, lose money on it and flee somewhere else like pussies. Like, get the fuck out of here, man. Like, look at, like, Bill, you know, you know, the 24th Precinct in Upper Manhattan as well as anybody. And I was there briefly with you early in my career. I, I was much younger and had dark hair. So yeah. did Bill, by the way. Uh, <laughs> But that neighborhood, now, again, if anybody that's listening ever watches the show Seinfeld, that's basically the Seinfeld neighborhood, the Upper West Side, yeah. cool area to hang out, at least it used to be. But now, look, in a short period of time, they've taken former small boutique hotels and turned them into homeless shelters. They say it's temporary. You know, good luck with that. Uh, and again, I'm old enough to remember back in the 70s, I was young, but that neighborhood had these crazy single room occupancy hotels, SRO right. hotels. Yeah. It's the same concept. It's gonna be a bunch of people. Some of them should be in mental institutions. Some of them should probably be in jail. Uh, they got out early or they got out because of COVID. And now that neighborhood of some, some of them are you know, fairly wealthy people, uh, their neighborhood is now quickly being destroyed by this city policy to, to house all these folks, again, many of them with mental issues, in one place or a couple of places in that neighborhood and look what the outcome's going to be. It's crazy. And you know, that's one of the problems is that there, in New York City right now, of course, with this mayor, the leadership is horrendous, but in 18 months, there's gonna be an election for the new mayor. And three of the favorites are just as bad as him. You know, three of the people in waiting to run for mayor. So the leadership is gonna be bad 
for the foreseeable future. So I don't see a great prospect for New York City. I really don't. And then, you know, I don't know if you read the article, a guy who owned, was one of the owners of uh, the, the comedy club on 78th Street. Uh, he wrote an article saying New York City's never coming back. Or oh, it was a very pessimistic view of New York City because all the money has fled and the money's not coming back. The money that pays for all these social programs, you know, the money that paid for that uh, billion-dollar program that the mayor's wife uh, squandered all the money on, Thrive New York City, whatever it was called. The money that pays for the subways, the money, I know that's a state program, the MTA. But all the people that pay the taxes in this city, that they may not come back. So what's going to provide the tax base to pay for all these programs? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I've done some work in Detroit, and uh, I've been in another, I have a sore spot in my heart for Detroit. Uh, Detroit's actually making a comeback. It's making a comeback because the folks in Detroit have finally elect, elected a mayor that is a former business guy, and he's trying to turn things around. He's, he's, locked, he's, he's linked with uh, Dan Gilbert, who owns Quicken Loans, and uh, he owns the Cleveland Cavaliers, very wealthy guy. He's given his people incentives to live in Detroit. Uh, but years ago, Detroit in the 50s, especially with the auto industry booming, it was a city of 1.5, maybe 2 million people. But when the decline started, to your point, people got out. And they got out in droves. They claim now they have 600,000 people. It's probably closer to 500,000. And sadly, most of the folks that are left behind, they don't need less services. They need more services from the city. Right. So. That's how Detroit got to be what it is, and it's, it's, it's coming out of it now, but look how long it's gonna to take to come out of it. And yeah. I, I sadly, I see, if this keeps up with New York City, it's gonna become Detroit with a better skyline, and that's it. Yeah, it's really sad, and uh, there's a lot to do with leadership, and look, at, look I, I look at even the subways. About a year, two years ago, they started letting people just pretty much jump to turnstiles and not enforce it. Pay your fare. What's that? Pay your fare. Yeah, but they, they, they've been sort of, it's sort of, they don't enforce it anymore. And my theory was simultaneously they were thinking they were going to bring in this congestion pricing and they were going to hit the, the suburbanite driving in with their car and make them pay for the turnstile jumpers. That was my theory. It's Let's what's happening. Well, yeah. it screwed it up, but it, it's, it was supposed to happen right now. I think, um, Pretty much right now. Yeah. And something happened. Which so if they start banging people that come into this city, no one's going to come into the city, you know? No, you talk to, I used to talk to the late, great Jack Maple. He wrote a great book called Crime Fighter. And, uh, and people forget, you know, I remember when, when Comstat first started and Jack was a transit lieutenant and Bill Bratton smartly identified Bill as a, as a, a Jack Maple as a crime fighting genius elevated him to a deputy commissioner slot. I remember sitting next to these old chiefs, NYPD guys at CompSat going, who's this guy? He's only a lieutenant. Uh, well, that only lieutenant was brilliant. And he would talk about you know, doing things on the subway long before anybody was talking about it. And guys like Maple and other transit cops would point out that most fair beats that they would grab on these fair beat sweeps had an average of 50 to 100 bucks on them. So it wasn't this myth that people are trying to push that folks are jumping the turnstile because they have no money. Right. Most folks can pay the fare, but if nobody's paying the fare, guys are saying, why should I? 
Uh, I know there's a certain politician from Queens. I don't like mentioning her name. Uh, she tries to spin that narrative that these are all poor people with, with nothing, no resources at all. It's a myth. And, and Maple pointed out way back when that many of the people, not all of them, but many of the people that are jumping those turnstiles are going into the system to commit crime. They're committing a crime to get in and, they, and they're going to commit a crime while they're on the system. I, not all of them, obviously, but many of them. And when you stop that, when you're the gatekeeper and stop that from happening, then your ridership is safer than if you let it happen. Right. Well, we was, Mark and I would notice even in the comedy world, a lot of young comics would live in do or die bed stuy or bad neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and they wouldn't think twice of taking the subway at two or three in the morning. That was a complete no-no back in the 80s and 90s. You just didn't do it because you almost were guaranteed you were going to get robbed. And maybe not every night, but at least, you know, once a month was going to happen, you know? It's going to ha- it's, it's If it's not happening, um, you know, because we're deep into the community wor- uh, comedy world, and so you get to know people where they live, and, you know, then they start calling us. I get calls all the time. I got robbed, this and that what's going to happen. And, you know, you start hearing these stories and did you hear about so-and-so and and -and so-and-so? There's a lot of New Yorkers. If this is just this small community that I I know periodically every week or two weeks, one of my friends in the comedy world gets robbed. How many other in the art world, in the music world and all this other stuff? You know, I saw a video and I was telling Bill about it. I still haven't shared it with you, but um, it's a robbery that takes place in the projects. And it's pretty well, run except for the fact that the morons well they probably knew that there was a camera but they don't care how do you not know that that elevator's got a camera but they waited until this family got in it was a man a woman and it looked like they had two kids guy had a nice watch on him um they all had phones the one guy comes in like he's gonna get in the elevator then he steps uh back and he lets his friend point the gun in there well, he goes and grabs everybody's stuff out of their pockets, their phones, the, that that uh, that uh, watch that he was wearing. And, you know, so this is, it looked like for some reason I felt like it happened during the day. So these are vultures that are hanging out in front of the projects, waiting for somebody to come in and use the elevator to go upstairs. And if that's the way the world is going to be, then everybody's going to go and get robbed again. And everybody's gonna, they're not even going to call it robbed. They're going to call it mugging again. I got mugged. Everybody got mugged back in the day. Like, like the, like the uh, famous Charles Bronson movie, the first one, Death Wish. Uh, yeah. yeah. That, was the up, that was the Upper West Side in the, in the, in the mid-late 70s, and they captured it to a T. And here's, here's some irony. The city was not too long ago booming. It was booming so much, to Mark's point, that Manhattan just got so high priced, nobody could live there. So because the neighborhoods that the police reclaimed, uh, and everything is built on safety and security. Bill Bratton says that all the time. Without safety and security, nothing can happen. So now neighborhoods that used to be, you know, no man's land, people like your friends are moving to Bed-Stuy. They're moving to parts of the Bronx. They're moving to, you know, other parts of the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, because that's where they can afford to live. Those neighborhoods, sadly, are going to be the first to go back. That, you know, Manhattan will cling as long as possible. There's more cops in Manhattan. But those, out, those outer borough neighborhoods that, that, quote, used to be bad, they're going to be bad again. They're going to be bad again quick. And those people are going to be stuck. And it's, it's, it's tough. And the, and the people who've been living there all along are the ones who are going to be more victimized. 
Well, you know, and also the police department doesn't have the tools to confront violent street crime anymore because they did away with street crime, citywide anti-crime. They did away with precinct anti-crime. So who's going to go after the street muggers, the, the pickpockets? Who's going to go after the uh, shooters on the street? You know, who's going to go after, you know, we used to talk about, they would constantly talk about those games, those dice games on the street. Dice, a dice game is just uh, a shooting waiting to happen. You know that, right? The other night. Yeah. There was one the other night. There was uh, they, they, the guy, he must have won because they chased him. They chased him and they shot him uh, a couple blocks later. They t and they took all his, uh, the winnings. So it's back. It's, it's so sad. It's so, it's so sad because, you know, what are you going to do? I always joke around with our guests and I always ask them, where are you going to move? <laughs> you know? It's funny. Bill's point. I mean, I was an anti-crime cop in a precinct. I was a street narcotics unit sergeant in the Bronx. I was in the narcotics division several times in my career. All three of those units don't exist anymore. So I'm telling people I'm extinct. You know? <laughs> and all very effective units. Very yeah. effective, you know. So what tools do, you know, and if you listen to uh, criminologists, they have these crazy theories about how, you know, arrests shouldn't be the way we, uh, we solve crime from arresting people. It's like 86th Street in Central Park West, they have a lot of motor vehicle accidents at that location. If you're the commanding officer of that precinct, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to put a red light car on that intersection and start issuing red light summonses. Are you going to see your accidents go down? You bet you're going to, right? Because probably the reason there's so many accidents at that corner is people are blowing the red light. Yeah, there's a there's a retired captain again. I'm not going to mention his name, but you know he's an academic. And again, a lot of the academics, you know, they 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 spout things like. Uh, and again, nothing against academics. Some of my friends are academics, and they're good, solid people. But this individual, well, other individuals will spout things like, when an arrest is made, it's a failure. Well, maybe it is a failure. Maybe it's a failure of that person's upbringing. Maybe it's a failure of whatever. But it, it's it's not always a failure. It's actually it's actually helping the victim. Uh, whenever we were accused of 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 being harsh, I, I we would have a guy in handcuffs saying, "Yeah, but this guy robbed three people." You know, right. so don't we care about the victim? I was uh, to save you. Yeah, this this other this captain I was mentioning, his thing was, uh, uh, "Comstat is bad. Don't have Comstat. Comstat turned things around." Guys like like Bill Bratton, Jack Maple, John Timoney, rest his soul. These people save, save thousands of lives by extension, by having, putting this accountability system in place to make the cops, let the cops be cops again. And I don't know if there's any Think visionary like that on the, on the horizon. Think about this. If you take in, let's just ballpark figure, say 15 years, that we went from close to uh, 3,000 homicides a year to about 300, 1,700 lives a year saved. Who do you think those lives were? I'd say the majority of them were African-Americans and Latinos. But in, in, in about, you want in, to talk in, about the one incident that the cops screwed up, not just here in New York, but all over the country. And meanwhile, while we're holding the cops back, you have these neighborhoods that they've uh, 50 shootings a weekend, six homicides. Who are the homicides? Who are the victims of the shootings? Even if it was 
one police incident nationwide every week, it's still, it's still those, those people might not die. Those yeah. people might not get shot. It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I, I saw a sad statistic the other day on, on the, the CompStat recap sheet for New York City, and shooting victims and shooting incidents right now are actually up compared to this time five years ago. You never saw a positive number before. The numbers, and they keep those numbers going back to when CompStat started 27 years ago. You never saw those numbers, all, the, all those historical numbers, five years, 10 years, 15 years, were always down numbers, negative numbers. Now they're turning into positive numbers, and it's unheard of. Because of all that's going on across the entire country in law enforcement. You know, the other thing was is that we, we also, part of CompStat was, it was predicated upon uh, broken windows policing. And I mean, I, I think that broken windows policing absolutely works. You know, concentrating <laughs> on the smaller crimes. <laughs> and, Trump. You know, and, but now you get academics preaching that that's, uh, that's a bad thing, broken windows policing. It's racist. It's just targeting people of color. It's targeting neighborhoods. Yeah, it's targeting neighborhoods that have a lot of crime, you know? And it, it, it's a lot of times a precinct commander won't answer correctly when they say, why is, is this tactic used in this neighborhood but not in that neighborhood? Because these two neighborhoods have to be policed differently because they have different problems. They have different, different issues. The 3-2 precinct in Harlem gets a lot of shootings, a lot of murders. The 19th precinct on the Upper East Side gets virtually no shootings, right? And maybe one murder a year. Are you going to police it the same way? No, you're not. Yeah, 19th precinct, they call the cops and they get a bad Chardonnay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but one problem that, that I think is not being highlighted enough, sadly, is the district attorneys, and not just in the New York City area, across the country, oh, you're seeing a complete, a complete sea change in, in prosecution, where I've seen in either on, on video or in newspapers where two candidates are running for district attorney in whatever city, pick your choice, uh, they're not talking about victims' rights. They're not talking about law and order. They're not talking about justice. They're talking about who can... Who can be more lenient? Who can be the one that's going to not prosecute that many? I mean, look at San Francisco. San Francisco's DA uh, is the son of convicted terrorists. Uh, domestic that's, terrorists. Un that's unbelievable. I know. I know that. Yeah. Boudin is the son of Kathy Boudin. And her and her husband, I think they interchanged who was going to serve prison time because they were convicted of domestic terrorism. Now, that does not and, mean that... And, the and, and Catherine Boudin was hired by Columbia University as a professor. I believe so, yeah. But yeah. that doesn't mean, so, again, that, that, that the kid is automatically like the parent. But in this case, he is. Yes. And you've seen it across the country. Uh, prosecutors, God bless Judge Brown when he was a DA in Queens. He was very pro-police, pro <laughs> law and order. Now, you know, whether it's Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn... I don't know about Staten Island, to tell you the truth, but now it seems like they don't seem willing to prosecute, and they seem to be more interested in what they view as police misconduct and forgetting about victims' rights. And it's, yep. it's, a, it's a trend across the country. Well, yeah. the, uh, the state attorney general, Letitia James, is doing a whole investigation, or has done a whole investigation, on the NYPD's response to the riots. 
with the intention of doing a hit job on the NYPD. And I know guys that work for the state attorney general's office. They wouldn't let anyone that was an investigator that was a former cop work on that case because they want to do a hit job. They want, they want, there's a predetermined outcome and things like that that yes. they want. Yeah, that's fair. Let's, let's round up the usual suspects, you know. It's, it's really, uh, it's really sort of sad, you know. I tell you, I was, I was actually in a pretty good mood when this started. <laughs> but, but I got, I got to say now, uh, I'm, I'm giving you a sit no. Um, I tell you what, I was in a, I was in a pretty upbeat you, mood. You should have. You guys could bring it right down. You well, gotta, you gotta get on stage, man. You're you guys can bring now, now, Mark, when you're on stage, you're not still wearing those Robin Williams uh, rainbow suspenders, are you? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so he goes on there with the bowler wrap wrapped around him. <laughs> I go. I go. <laughs> you know, oh. that, you said we could ask you this question, so we have to we have to ask it, and it has to do with uh, the NYPD leadership. And we recognize it's got to be the most difficult time in the world to be the police commissioner, the chief of the department, or any chief, any uh, police executive, but. The part that lost the rank and file was when the chiefs kneeled to these to these crowds and to these uh, this mob mentality. What what what's your opinion on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, the PC Dermot Shea. I always tell people I'm officially old because Dermot was a lieutenant under me many years ago. So uh, and 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 with Chief Terry Monahan, him and I were sergeants in the four six precinct. Uh, together years ago. I have, I have the utmost respect for both of those guys. They're up through the ranks, guys who spent a lot of time in the street, a lot of time arresting bad guys. Uh, and so I'm not just talking about kneeling as far as any of them are concerned, just, just the kneeling thing in general. And people would say, well, Hartnett, it's easy for you to say because you're not in the game anymore. Uh, but I know myself. And uh, when people ask me would I kneel, I say, no, I wouldn't. And, uh, and you don't have to put a, have a gun put to your head to kneel. You don't have to kneel. And I would say that to anybody. If they ask me, and I've even provided some off-the-record informal advice to chiefs in other, in other areas of the country, uh, you don't have to kneel. You can, you can do your job respectfully. You can be respectful to the crowd. Uh, to me, personally, uh, I'm a Catholic. I would tell people flat out, I kneel in church. I kneel when I say my prayers. Uh, I would offer, does anybody want to say the Lord's Prayer with me? I mean, you can, you can get around it, but you don't have to succumb to it. And uh, anybody who like, wants to debate me on that, I'd be happy to do it. But again, uh, I've seen chiefs, you know, for whatever reason, kneeling wasn't enough. Uh, I've, seen a, I've seen a video of a, a chief laying down on the ground on his chest. Uh, I guess another chief felt he had to top that and he laid on his chest and put his hands behind his back like he was handcuffed. So, I mean, What's next? Jumping into an open grave? I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's gotten to the point where it's playing, can you top this? But again, not to make fun of it, but I would, I would tell any chief, if he feels strongly about kneeling, go ahead. I'll never say, you know, it's, it's, you know that's your choice, but don't make it my choice. And that's, that's right. my point. You, you, can, you can ignore that demand from a crowd and still do, still do your job as chief and still be respected and still be you know, linked to your community. You don't have to kneel. But how do you face the rank and file police after you've done that? You know, it's, it's a good question. And, and I don't know. I mean, because, you know, I would say 
if you knelt because you thought it was going to keep the city from exploding and cops from getting hurt and it worked, then good for you. Wouldn't work for me, but good for you. That's not what happened. The chiefs that knelt, for the most part, anywhere in the country, later that night, their city still blew up. Right. So it didn't work. So you might have thought you might have maybe saved the day for that moment. Okay, but down the road, either that night or the next day, whatever like that, the city still was up in flames. So what good did it, what good came of it? Then right. the answer is mostly nothing. Well, you, you're talking about that. It's like, you know, people are they, they're so scared of being on the wrong side of history. You know what I'm saying? And um, which I mentioned this, uh, the, the last part, well, look at uh, the, the, that Montauk Brewing Company, um, the beer company out in the Montauk with the defund uh, Montauk uh, Brewery. I mean, those guys wanted to come out there and put their little sign out there in chalk. I feel bad for them, but you know what? I was I was in Montauk. I didn't. See, I, I saw. I actually knew the one black person I saw um, in Montauk that weekend. So who the fuck are you catering to? What are you doing right now? They're trying to be woke. They're trying to. Be are you woke. trying to be bring them out there? You, you're trying to make a political statement. So stop fucking bullshitting. Now that you're scared, you made your bed. Now you got to sleep in it. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I see some of these, you know, the social justice warriors. And, and they're all tough guys now. You know, they, they like to go up to a cop. Now, the poor cop is there. He knows he's got 100 cameras on him. Uh, I'm not condoning any kind of violence, but, you know, the skinny little guy with the man bun can now... Mark, you don't have a man bun, do you? No. <laughs> the skinny little guy with the man bun can now get in his face and scream at him and go nose to nose with that cop because he knows damn well that cop can't do anything. So to me, that's cowardly. But the other ones, listen, I'll, I'll say a lot of the people are, say, peaceful protesters, and a lot of them are misguided. They think that, you know, by holding a cardboard sign, you know, saying the cops stink, uh, or yelling at the cop, you know, they think they're going to be like the Selma, people who marched in Selma, and the Freedom Riders. God bless those people back in the 60s. They were real, true zealots, and zealots in a good way, for a good cause. These people think what they're doing, let's tear that statue down. They think that they're like Rosa Parks and all these other folks, and they're not. They're nowhere close to those people, but they want to say you know, to their grandkids years from now, I marched and I, I yelled at the cops and, and screwed them, and, and it's nonsense. They're, not, they're nothing close to what those good, solid people did many years ago. Yeah, yeah, you're 100% right with that. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that. It's because there's a guy... Um, he spoke in the RNC uh, the, last night, maybe the night before, and he was actually sitting at the lunch counter when he wasn't served as an African-American. And so he's got a picture of himself at that Woolworth, wherever it was, not being served. It's a famous picture. And now he's up at the RNC, uh, you know, <laughs> basically, you know, saying you should vote for Trump. Uh, it's it's kind of ironic that, that that it's come so full circle because the reality is, uh, you know, if you're an African-American right now and, and somebody's telling you, you have to vote for us, like, why? Talk to me about why. Talk to me how did this benefit me. Did you see that the, the new one? Um, she's running in uh, Baltimore. Yeah. Her, uh, her video that went viral. Walking through Baltimore, 
50 years, 53 years of, uh, of Democrats over there. And this is what the city looks like. So that's an amazingly powerful commercial. I mean, oh. I've been to Baltimore many times and, uh, and you know, that's not a Hollywood movie set. That's the real deal. And, uh, you know, that, that, that message is going to res- resonate. It did, because you know how it resonated? Because the DNC, that was the, that was the same day that uh, Michelle Obama did her speech. And she dropped her video the same day. She went viral, and nobody's talking about that, that uh, her, uh, Michelle Obama speech. It was, pow- it was powerful. I don't know whether they planned it like that on purpose, but it, it's, um, the whole world is so freaking screwed up right now. That we, we, you know, like just the, that the police are bad. You know what I'm saying? And that, um, <laughs> it's, it's hard not when you like, I have to hesitate now when, when somebody tells me they're coming on the job and listen, I'm, I'm proud of our profession. I'm proud of our, our, you know, former department. Uh, you know, I, I would say thank God for the police test. Cause I don't know what I would have done. I wasn't, I wouldn't be good at anything else. Uh, but well, maybe stand up with you guys. But, uh, <laughs> compared to us right but i'm not making any money so uh, uh <laughs> but, you know you know now it's hard to tell a young person that wants to come into law enforcement uh i mean i i don't tell them no but i i'm, I'm not as enthusiastic about it i have to be honest you know what i think about too a lot of people say would you still come on now and i'm like well i came on in 92 which was the peak of the crack epidemic nobody knew it was going to die out so i guess i would have probably come on now but you know, I got a 700 on my SAT. So, what are you gonna do? <laughs> How many years until I gotta get? A, I can get out. 25. All right, I'll do it. Mark, that is that's shocking. That's shocking. <laughs> what? That I got a 700? I should. Uh, yeah, I mean that. I thought. They give I you thought, I, points. You, you think that's high? <laughs> I thought it was pretty high. <laughs> See what I did there, right? Yeah, it came back around. You know, came you know, back around. I, I, want, I want to ask you another question just about the whole leadership thing. How how do you do the job if you're Dermot Shea, if you're Terry Monaghan? How do you work? How can you possibly work with this mayor and send out the right message to the people that are underneath you? How do you do it? It's, it's just it's it seems like an impossible job. It it's got to be hard. Again, I I don't I don't speak to them about their 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 separate interactions with the mayor, but I'll, I'll just my own personal story. When I was in Yonkers, uh, I worked for a great man. The mayor of Yonkers at the time was Phil Amaconi. Uh, and the guy was, he's an engineer by trade. He always wanted to be an engineer. He went back to engineering after politics. He was a deputy mayor there for eight years. He was the mayor for eight years. He brought me in at the end of his first term. And the guy was a conservative Republican. He, but when I got there, he said, I need you to run the police department. I need you to, there's some things that need to be fixed. Run the police department. And he, listen, I always answered to him. I always kept him plugged in, but he gave me the autonomy to run the police department because he felt I brought in a, a so-called expert in policing, let him run the police department. I'll be the mayor and you keep me informed. I think a lot of times in various cities, maybe New York is one of them, the mayor wants the police commissioner to do everything he says right away, you know, be his, be his extension. And, and to a degree, that's true. But uh, I would argue that Terry Monaghan and Dermot Shea know a lot more about policing than the mayor. Uh, so, so I, you know, I think early on, he let, when he brought in Bill Bratton, he let Bratton run the police department and Jimmy O'Neill too, to a certain degree. And then I think, I don't know what happened, but 
I mean, he doesn't, he's been the same all along, the mayor. But my point is, my mayor let me run the police department, and I, I think I did a good job for him, and he was appreciative. At the end, when I left him, I said, you know, you never asked me, am I registered Republican, Democrat? You never asked me to, to hurt an enemy. You never asked me to take care of a friend. He said, I didn't need to know any of that stuff. I don't, I don't care how you vote. You just run the police department and did a good job. And to me, it was a perfect relationship. And I was blessed because not everybody, not every police executive has that relationship. I think uh, de Blasio saw an opportunity right now with what's going on to, uh, to capitalize. I think this was a progressive movement across the country. I don't think it's a coincidence that um, it seems like the same things are happening in, in states, blue states, in their big cities to defund. I think it's all, it's a coordinated effort to uh, get people to pay for their own security, privatizing security. I've gone on and on about this, but that's my theory. I won't bore you guys with it, um, especially Ed, because, you know. <laughs> it, is, it is getting close to my bedtime, but it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what I want to ask? The, the one other thing. It, there's been some um, news that the city council wants to reword the diaphragm bill and uh, re resubmit it. They realize how deeply they've fucked up. But my thing is, is that I, the, the unions have already filed lawsuits. I wouldn't let these boobs in the city council rewrite anything. I would let the courts take care of this uh, and then slap these, slap the city council with what the law is going to be. Yeah, and, and to his credit, Chief Terry Monaghan has, has, has pushed for that. He, from the very beginning, he said that that law is flawed. I mean, anybody that's arrested somebody that don't want to be arrested knows you're going to roll around the ground, and there's going to be a time when you may be on his back or on his diaphragm or whatever. And, and the law is, the way the law is written, even if the person who's getting arrested doesn't want to press charges, charges can still be filed against that cop, which is amazing. So you take that, obviously a morale killer and an arrest killer, and then you take bail reform uh, and you take letting guys out of jail with COVID. And then you take that, what people don't talk about a lot is the law that was enacted about discovery material where everything has to be turned over to the defense within 15 days, which is almost impossible in some cases, and you guys know that being, being detectives. Uh, not only that, but part of that material is names, addresses, phone numbers of witnesses. Right. So, as I said before, good luck getting people to cooperate. So that's a yeah, perfect and, and, storm and, and, of stuff that's leading us where we are. And the other thing is, is releasing cops' disciplinary records. Absolutely. I mean, why don't they just acknowledge the fact no one's going to ever take this job again? If they do this, you know. Imagine if they go back to your high school records. Oh, then you're finished. <laughs> no, that was we're, we're that at was a, eight years of his life. <laughs> if, they, if they find those sea summonses for drinking in the story. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Ed, I want to thank you for coming through again, man. We're over an hour. We're at an hour eighteen, hour twenty. You were phenomenal. You had you came prepared. Oh, I'm sorry that happened with the Facebook Live. Uh, what I don't know what actually happened. It was the first time that ever happened. So. Okay, my, my relatives back in Ireland with the time difference. They're all around the fireplace. It was like <laughs> 4 o'clock in the morning. They got uh, a big Waiting for this. <laughs> they might have got a little stewed. 
but uh, like they'll with, get over it. Like with an old radio and everybody's listening to the yeah. prize <laughs> fight, they're going to listen to you, right? <laughs> like they're waiting for FDR to speak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that fucker. <laughs> no good. He's no bloody good. He's a no good fucker. He should have never left Dublin. <laughs> well, uh, before we go, Bill, talk about the Patreon. Oh, we okay. We, we now, because we haven't gotten paid for this in a year and a half, we have uh, a site called Patreon, www.patreon.com slash police off the cuff. And you can join that for the price of seven, nine, or eleven dollars a month, whichever tier you want to be on. And we give our Patreon customers extra content. Like, for example, I'm doing a new show once a week called Real Real Crime uh, Episodes. And so far, I've interviewed Michael O'Keefe, uh, talking about a triple homicide in the A3 in Brooklyn. And just yesterday, uh, I had on um, now now. Sandy Rubino. Sandy Rubino from Manhattan Special Victims who talked about a horrendous case of child abuse that she had worked on. So I remember Sandy. Real, you know Sandy Rubino? I remember Sandy, yep. She's great, great detective. And what an interesting case. And these cases are real cases, true cases. And that's going to go just for our Patreon customers. And now Mark will tell you what he's going to do. I just uh, did my first uh, recording today. And it was with uh, uh, a buddy of mine that I met while I was doing comedy. His name is Andrew Singer. And I'll be promoting it tonight. I'll drop it uh, tomorrow on Patreon. We'll, we'll promote it. Um, he's a, a retired member of uh, the service as well. He worked for Passaic Sheriff's Department. Uh, his son, at three and a half years old, was diagnosed with um, meningitis. And uh, he was very sick. Uh, and uh, because of the parents' love and care, um, he's still alive. He wasn't supposed to make it. He's 14 years old. His name is Jaden. And uh, I fell in love with the family just by watching their social uh, media posts and stuff like that throughout the years. So I had him on. And to hear about, uh, you know, what a family goes through and what's really important in life. And while everybody's out there freaking doing stupid stuff and, you know, this is this is what life is really about. You know, and uh, it's a, it's a, it moved me. It'll move you. And uh, I welcome you to, uh, to join us on Patreon. And uh, the Dipped in Butter, which is 11 bucks, is what we're doing. <laughs> we named our tiers. The first one is The Bucket, and that only costs seven bucks. The next one is Polish My Rack. And the last one is Dipped in Butter. That's the most expensive one. Because you know how good it feels to dip them in butter. Wait, wait a second. Stay right there. Wait a second. <laughs> Polish my rack. <laughs> That's it. Not bad. 30 EPDs. Not bad. Yeah, Most of it, wrong place, wrong Good. time. It's you a gotta, nice rack. You got to talk to Walter Wazalewski and get on the Valor page. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, well, uh, so, bucket, polish my rack. What's the other one? Dipped dip in butter. Dipped in butter. <laughs> the Irish girl uh, loved that. Uh, Amanda Coleman. Dipped in butter. Okay. Like, oh, I love the dipped in butter one. So, so what do you get for dipped in butter again? That, well, it's not what you get. It's what we get. It costs that you can say bucks. on a family channel, I mean. What? <laughs> it's 11 yeah. bucks to be, to be in the dipped in butter tier. Can you believe I actually showed my, my rack? It's a nice rack. That's a, I'd, be, I'd be proud of that. <laughs> that's, 
That's not the first time you've used that line. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. All right, Ed, thanks for coming through, man. Hey, guys, thank you again. I know we kid around a lot, but again, it's what you guys have been doing and what you keep doing. Uh, like I said, you really fly the flag for, for the policing profession, the noble profession of policing. Uh, and uh, I'm proud to know both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. We're proud to know you as well. Thanks for being part of the family.